you can believe it, it's another episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. This is a show where every week we cover topics related to building and growing startups using an ambitious yet sustainable approach. This is where we talk about building real businesses with real customers who pay us real money and we seek freedom, purpose, and relationships. Thanks so much for joining me again this week. Great conversation with Cody Duval. He is the founder slash acquirer of a support app, a customer support app called Keeping. And I'm doing something a little different over the next two weeks. It occurred to me that the last time I did a really tactical kind of tip-oriented learning episode, several people tweeted me and actually a couple wrote in saying, you should do more of those. Those were like the early days of Startups for the Rest of Us. And of course, I want to have a mix. I want to have a balance of different episode types. So what we're going to do over the next two weeks is today we're going to hear Cody's story of acquiring and growing keeping in this really crowded space of help desk tools, customer support tools. And then next week, we're going to hear from him on nine tactics for amazing customer support. Because obviously, Cody running an app with a bunch of customers doing customer support, he sees the do's and don'ts. He sees the strategies and tactics that win and those that are pretty big mistakes. So I'm excited for this format, and I think it's something I'm going to consider doing with additional guests in the future, because someone running an app that sends a lot of email or that helps people do customer support, they probably know a lot more about sending email and doing customer support than most of us do as generalist founders. But before we dive in to today's show, I wanted to remind you that we launched the Tiny Seed Syndicate a couple months ago. And the syndicate is, in essence, an investment vehicle that allows us to invest in B2B SaaS companies that may be a little later stage than the traditional tiny seed accelerator companies. I think my rule of thumb guidance, if you want to apply to get investment from the syndicate, is that you should probably be doing seven or 800000 in ARR. I mean, it could be a little lower. It depends on growth rate. It depends on a lot of things. But if you're interested in raising from tiny seed-like, microconf-like, startups for the rest of us-like investors, Tiny Seed Syndicate is something you'll want to check out. We've been running one to two deals per month, and folks are raising, at this point, you know, between half a million and a million dollars, and they usually have some section of that filled, and then we get an allocation of a few hundred thousand, and it's been going really well. It's always exciting to be working on something new, and so if you're interested in that, head to tinyc.com slash apply, and at the bottom, there's a you know, form to fill out info about the syndicate. And of course, if you're an accredited investor, if you want to invest in great B2B SaaS companies that would be listening to startups for the rest of us, head to tinyc.com slash syndicate. And it's an easy application process. As long as you're accredited, it's all done through AngelList. And so it's all done through AngelList. It only takes a few minutes. And then you get to see the syndicate deals as they come through. And you can invest in one and not the next one. You basically get to pick and choose the syndicate deals because each one is an individual investment and the minimum investments are really low usually i think between two and five thousand for the most part so if you're interested tinyc.com slash syndicate and with that let's dive into my conversation with the founder of keeping cody duvall cody duvall thanks so much for joining me great to be here rob yeah it's uh good to have you on keeping is your startup keeping is a simple customer support tool that integrates with Gmail. And you are a single founder. You're part of the current Tiny Seed Batch. You want to give folks an idea of what stage you're at, whether you know some founders give MRR, some founders do, hey, I'm, the team size is this big and we're default to live. Just some ideas so folks have an idea. 
Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm a solo founder. There are three remote engineers that I employ basically full time. And I would say we're default alive, but with the caveat that all of my profit is going into building the business. So I could certainly sort of go into solo mode and make a business of keeping. But right now we're, we're very much in sort of investing and growing the business. As so many of us are. Yeah. And so you started a help desk three years ago, a help desk software three years ago. There's already a lot of them out there. Some of them are good, some are not. But what was the thought process there of, I'm going to enter this incredibly competitive market as a solo bootstrap founder? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it, is, it is sort of crazy in that there are crowded markets and then there are crowded markets. And the, the help desk customer service tool space is huge. You've got Zendesk, Help Scout, Freshdesk. The real sort of epiphany for me, at least, is why Keeping exists is that, you know, a small business, perhaps a non-SaaS business, doesn't need sort of all the horsepower of a Help Scout or a Zendesk. For the most part, those tools are quite expensive, quite complicated. And there's a gap in the market between sort of doing it yourself in Gmail or just in your, you know, sharing an inbox and then those big tools, right, which are really built for customer support teams that are professionals. And so, yeah, if it's if it's not clear when we say we integrate with Gmail, we actually sort of pry into Gmail and turn your Gmail inbox into a customer support tool, which is basically just the right size for for a lot of teams. Right. And if you. If your team grows and you got a 10-person customer support team, then maybe that's right. Then maybe you should go and buy Help Scout. But for the rest of the world, there's a tool that's right-sized, and we think that's keeping. And when, when you and I talked, I remember during the Tiny Seed interview process, I brought up a couple, I think, concerns that I had. One is if you're going after small teams... It's going to be lower, not necessarily lower price point, but certainly a two-person company is a little more price sensitive than a you know a ten-person support team. So that was one thing I was thinking. You know, churn is going to be worse. And the other is when they get to three or four support reps, aren't people going to migrate off and essentially outgrow keeping? Well, starting with the second concern, I think most of our customers probably never will have customer support reps. Right? They're a wholesale business. They're they're a B two B business that customer support is a part of their day, but they're not going to grow a big customer support team. As far as being price sensitive, that is, you know, when you're at this part, when you're at this part of the market, there is a little bit of, okay, what is the right pricing? It's something we've talked about, especially in this space, which is all per seat pricing. And, you know, you open up a bunch of pricing pages and you'll see anything from $60 a user to $9 a user. And so for the most part, the tool becomes so integrated into your workflow, this isn't true just of keeping, but it's true of the category, that they're almost sort of immune from churn because you really spend a lot of time setting up, you kind of build it into your day-to-day operations, there's knowledge base where you spend a lot of time sort of pouring in your content, and it becomes painful to churn. It's not like a an SEO optimization tool, which is you go in and use it and you're done. This becomes really kind of a core part of your workflow. And so um, I think this is true for Help Scout, it's true for Zendesk. Once you get a customer on board, they're pretty loyal. I've had customers from day zero that are still trudging along and our churn continues to be really, really low. And so we're really focusing on growth and, and we think we've got a good sense of like, all right, this is the right tool for some segment of the market because they're not, they're not churning out, at least not yet. And as much as on this show, I talk about higher price points, larger teams, less likely to switch, the kind of way that that cuts the other way is 
those folks take a long time to make decisions. And there are often many people involved and it's decision by committee. And enterprise sales is a reason they take three, four, five months. With a tool like Keeping or with, you know, I had Christopher Gimmer with Snappa. I mean, any tool that has that lower price point and is either aimed at, I'll say, solo solopreneurs, solo founders, or just small teams, there's one decision maker with a credit card. <laughs> right. And and right. they can, if they like the tool, they sign up and, and it's done. And it's not a big, you know, a big long process. Is is keeping sales process purely self-serve at this point? Totally inbound. And because of our, you know, our ARPU, our average revenue per user being, I would say probably a little bit lower than than some of our competitors, like in the bigger, you know, the help scouts and the Zendesks, the menu of of growth channels available to us is limited, right? So we're all bidding on the same keywords in in Google, but if your your average customer is three hundred dollars a month versus ours, which is way lower than that, we're both bidding for the same keyword. We're not going to be able to play there, right? So SEO content marketing has become our core channel. People goes without saying, but even there, right? They've got fleets of writers, got a couple, and so it's really you know trying to optimize that inbound channel. And I think. Maybe there's a day we graduate to a little bit of outbound, but you know you can do the math there and figure out it's really it really takes it'll take a lot of effort to to sort of drag one lead in the door with outbound sales. And I think for now we're we're pretty happy with the inbound model. I want to get into a little later kind of the challenges of being a bootstrapper in such a massive market. But before we do that, let's take a step back and roll the clock back three years. Microconf 2019. You you were working on another idea to talk us through how the transition happened. That's right. So I think this was, you can correct me, I think this was the last big U.S. microconf. It was in it Vegas. Was. Yep. Um, which feels just like another lifetime ago. But I was there kicking around a totally different idea. My background is a, is a developer. I work, I live in Brooklyn and I work as a, as a consultant in sort of Series B, Series C startups and really understood some of the challenges affecting software teams. And I thought, I'm going to build a startup that is being sold to developers. And so I, I was at MicroConf. Um, I had a co-founder who had just had a baby, couldn't afford to work full time. You know, the, all the, the zero to one problem is real. And at MicroConf, I met the FE International folks. They are a, um, I think your audience probably knows, but a, but a brokerage that, that sell businesses. And shortly after MicroConf, Keeping came along. It had a great domain. It was a single word domain, keeping.com, and a handful of customers. The out-of-pocket was not very much. And it was a sort of epiphany of like, wait a minute, I could, I could spend a lot of time trying to get an idea past the zero stage, zero to point one, or what about this idea? Um, and it really resonated with me. I think that in the world of, you know, buying businesses, by the time they reach someone like me, they've been through a lot of channels first. And so I think a lot of folks probably passed overkeeping because it was a technical mess. And so there is definitely, you know, I, I think the, the FEI pitch is, you know, it just needs a little marketing to scale and it's ready to go. And of course, it's more complicated than that. But being a technical founder, I thought, OK, wait a minute, I can do the work needed to get this back into shape. Again, the out of pocket wasn't very much. Um, and it came with a basically a validated idea that um, maybe just needed some iteration. So there's so much to dig into here. So did you know it was a technical dumpster fire when you bought it or was that after? Well, the, the due diligence process when you're buying a business allows you to sort of get into the GitHub and poke around. And, you know, it's it was like, oh, this doesn't look great, but it seems to be working. It wasn't really until a few weeks in when I was really running the business. I had customers emailing me saying, hey, the server's down, could you restart it again, that we're doing basically my customer support. And in a weird way, that was a great sign because they weren't churning out, right? They were completely tolerant of this service that was 
going down multiple times per day. I'd wake up at three in the morning, reboot the server. So it's really hard to know, I think, um, unless you're unless you spend a lot of time with a code base to know how bad is this. And, I, you know, I think it's a it's definitely a lesson that if you're buying a business off of something like FE International, make sure you're ready to support it technically, because it's definitely could be the hardest part of it. I have bought many small software products. I bought info products. I bought ebooks. I bought an e-commerce site. I bought probably, I mean, 20 plus of them from about 2006 until 2011. That was my last acquisition. And there were a couple, there were a few SaaS apps in there too. Most people don't know or don't remember, but in the early days when I started talking about micropreneurship and you know being a software developer who doesn't take venture funding, a big part of that, I used to say, buy instead of build. Buy instead of build because it gets you past, if you can get past product market fit, amazing. You've saved yourself what, 18 months, two years from, from you know, no code to, to product market fit. If it gets you to $1,000 a month, maybe you don't have product market fit. What does it save you? Six months, maybe a year of nights and weekends, depending on how complex the product is. And the first product I ever bought was .NET Invoice. It was $11,000. It was a shitload of money and it scared the crap out of me. You know, I, I grew up making minimum wage, four fifteen an hour, I think was my first job. So $11,000 was like more money than I knew about. I had never driven a new car, you know, it's all that stuff. So it was a huge risk for me. But the moment that I acquired it, I realized this just saved me like a year's worth of nights and weekends. And it had some issues. It had, it was an account, it was invoicing software <laughs> and you have one job. It's to do <laughs> math right. And it had math <laughs> errors in the invoices. So I had to fix, it was not a technical nightmare like what you're talking about. It was, there were bugs and then there were some overpromises. Customer support sucked. I fixed all that. And it turned into a great business for me, you know, over its lifetime, probably made me a few hundred thousand dollars, you know, and it was a side project, right? So for 11 grand plus my time, it did that. I think more people should be open to the possibility of buying apps. And as a developer, oftentimes the big complaint I get or the big reservation is, how do you know what you're going to get? How do you know if the code's going to be a mess? And I'm always like, well, if it is, then you fix it. That's your superpower. Yeah. Like you That's are right. the person who has this ability. So what do you, what are you worried about? You know, similarly, like, I don't know if I've ever said this and then I'll actually continue with the interview instead of ranting, but I bought Hittail in 2011 for $30,000 and it took me almost two months to get it technically to where I wanted it to be basically. I had to migrate servers. I spent all this time. It was like 40 to 60 hour weeks for two months. And I finally got it stabilized. Over the life of that product, the revenue, which was almost purely net profit, plus what I wound up selling it for in 2015, was just over $1 million for $30,000 investment. And then months of my time, and don't get me wrong, it's not like I, I was working full time on that thing for a year before we started Drip. But I was willing to do the slog that other devs probably weren't, you know, and there was a bit of risk. It's like, well, 30 grand is a lot of money. By that time, 30 grand felt like 11 grand, you know, a few years earlier. But but that's the thing. And so when when I hear you talk about this, I think, of course, I would have made that bet too. But what I want to find out is when you were about to make this bet, to put this money on the table and decide, hey, I'm going to go full time. I'm not going to build my own thing. Were you reticent? Were you anxious? Were there second thoughts? Like, how, how did that go down emotionally? Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think the amount of money we're talking about here is it's not insignificant. It's 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 a big chunk of savings. You've got I've got a wife and kids, you know, there's a partnership here. So it's not as easy of just being like, well, I mean, this is going to work. I think it's easier now looking back because keeping is working and it is successful. So I, I can sort of have some some hindsight. But 
I think one thing has probably changed from 2011 when you bought Hittail or even 2019 when I bought Keeping is that there's the, the buying pool is much wider now. And I think that by the time deals make it to us little folk, you know, they passed over private equity. They passed over really well-funded um, sort of aggregators of SaaS businesses. And so I don't want to say we get the dregs, but but just be aware that, you know, the good stuff may be slurped up before it gets to you. So in my case, I very quickly decided that I had to rebuild it from scratch. As a consultant, you know, back when I was working at startups, that is almost always a bad idea. When I hear peers of mine that are saying, I'm going to do a rewrite, the honest advice I always have is like, you probably shouldn't because it's going to take five times as long as you think and you still, <laughs> and it will never get done, right? But in this case, yep. the app was just basically unusable. And I think one of the great decisions I made right away was to not do it myself, was to hire a team. So I hired a very, very experienced team in Poland. So it wasn't like buying a team here in New York. And I think, again, looking back that it maybe it's a little counterintuitive. I think I probably could have put my head down and six months later, even a year later, come back with a working app. But I think that technical solo founders should stop developing as soon as they can afford it. And they should move on to something else. They should they should start managing and stop developing. And I that's a sort of an opinion that can't maybe be applied in all cases, because obviously you need to have some capital to be able to do that. But there's some level 2K a month, 3K a month where that I think that money needs to start going towards an offshore team or, or a person and you become more of a, you know, reviewing pull requests, but stop shipping code. And um, again, I'm really glad I did, did that in my case. That is a controversial take. It's a take I have said many times. And anytime I say it, I get pushed back from devs who say, but I want to write the code. But, I, you know, and then so I was like, well, who's going to market it? Well, I'm going to hire a marketer. And it's like, huh, I think it's harder for a developer to hire a marketer than to learn to market yep. myself. And I think it's easier for you to hire a dev because you know what you're looking for. You know, you have that superpower, the advantage of it. So that's a trip. So you didn't rewrite it yourself. You hired a team pretty early. I didn't rewrite it myself. And it, I, you know, it, I even chose a tech stack that, and this is again such a developer thing though, right? You you get to choose the tech stack and it was one, it's written in Elixir and Phoenix, which is a very developer friendly ecosystem. I was very excited to get in there and basically just spend my day writing code. But I think I knew again from my experience elsewhere that it was just going to be a long, long slog and I was going to be done and kind of be at the same place as I started, except that nine months would have gone by. Right. Yeah. And I didn't have that time nor that money to do that. And it felt like, okay, my time is worth more than a rate of what I'm paying for an offshore developer. So let's do that. I think the inverse is true as well, which is if a marketer, you know, is involved in a technical business, a solo marketer, that they should hire a marketing team as soon as they can and really learn, don't learn to code, but learn how to manage developers, get a little bit technical, find a coach and, you know, work with someone else. Because again, for me, as I sort of said, okay, I'm going to become more of a marketer, I quickly said, I'm going to hire a content marketing agency. And I realized I had no idea if they were doing a good job or a bad job. I was just sending them a check and blog posts were going up and sort of realized, well, wait a minute, I need to do this on my own for a little while to figure out how it works, what's good, what's bad. And I think that's true with every section of building a SaaS business is you kind of have these little boss battles where you have to become good enough to manage the people you're hiring. And, you know, I don't think we enter in as founders there. You have to work for it. And that's hard. Yeah, especially when you don't have buckets of funding. Because if you had half a million dollars, you could feasibly hire a really senior person who probably knows what they're doing and can do the strategy. But when you're bootstrapped like us, that's just not an option. You know, and like you said, you're going, you're going offshore. And like you, 
I did customer support for all of my apps before I hired it out. I did marketing for all of my apps before I hired it out. I did development on all of them except for Drip and before I hired it out. But eventually I hired it out as soon as I could. And that was, I think, that was a big epiphany for me and something I tried to preach early on and through my books and all that is like, I don't know many, there aren't that many developers who start software companies and remain developers full-time and and experience the success that they want. There's usually some type of, you know, transition to a different role. Not not always, but I find that that's pretty common. So, okay, so you you hire a small team in Poland they rewrite the code base. And then did you have to migrate? Like, did you relaunch it? Did you have to migrate people over? I bought Keeping with a handful of customers. So it wasn't like, oh my God, how am I going to migrate these thousands of accounts? It was small enough at that point that we could do it by hand, right? Like it was literally, you know, account by account got pushed over to the new database. And we're sort of over a period of weeks, we moved all the customers over and then shut off the old app. And it it worked. But again, because we were small, I would be really terrified to do it right now. Mostly just the database side of it. But there are patterns that you can do to kind of do that well. But it was it was a scary couple of weeks, but we got through it. So you you get everyone migrated over and then does it start growing? Like, did you launch it? What happened next in terms of getting traction? Because, you know, when you and I first spoke was about a year ago. So it was about a year after you launched or relaunched, I guess. It would would have been January-ish of 2021. You got done with the code base in March 2020 and you were far enough along that it made sense for you to join Tiny Seed. So something, some magic happened in that, you know, that nine or 10 months. Yeah, I would love to say that there was like a bolt of lightning came through the sky. What happened was that, the content marketing that I had been doing started to take root. And it's always a lesson, right? It takes a lot longer for that to happen than you think. And so I started to show up and search results for some really important kind of like high intent keyword phrases. And the growth kind of just kept happening without me focusing too hard on marketing. And unfortunately, that was another little bit of a trap because there was natural growth happening month to month, um, partly because I'm on the lower end of of the sort of MRR curve at this point. And I sort of realized after about six months that, you know, who is my customer? Who am I marketing this to? Because Keeping had kind of grown organically to this point. And there is a lot of advice, I think, in the bootstrapper community about kind of niching down, for lack of a better term, which is like, oh, wait a minute, you're a customer help desk for anybody. How can you market to everybody? You should be a customer support tool for school principals, for lawyers, for... And I think since Keeping is already kind of has a Gmail niche, right? So number one, you can't use Keeping unless you're using Chrome and Gmail. I feel like we're already kind of sliced off enough of the market that we weren't going to try to go and be yet another slice, which was, you know, for some persona. And so I think trying to build Keeping off of its revenue sort of by the bootstraps was really, it's really, really hard when you're when you're sort of sub 5K MRR. You just, there's just not enough money to pump back into marketing. And I think that it's one of the reasons I joined Tiny Seed, frankly, was that you need to have a little bit of a war chest if you're in this giant market. I mean, you know, Zendesk has 6,000 employees, right? It's a publicly traded company. There's some advantages to that. They probably move really slowly, but they also, they take up a lot of oxygen in the marketing space. So a lot of what I was trying to do on my own was just good enough, but, you know, it wasn't quite enough to kind of get over the hump. And so in mid-2020, um, I hired... Asia Arangio at Demand Maven, and we did a bunch of customer marketing research, which was also really relevatory and I think a key step in us growing. Asia's a friend of the pod. She's appeared here several times, friend of MicroConf and a tiny seed mentor. So yep. that's, that's awesome. Yeah, she's, she's great. And so you touched on it a little bit, but you basically said you're in this space, you're starting to get traction. 
and you're competing against Zendesk, who has 6,000, I thought you were going to say customers, 6,000 employees. They're that big. I just, I guess they're a public company, right? They are public. Yeah. Yeah. So I, that's still a lot of people. So, yeah. so you're competing in this market and you're competing with big companies. What have been some of, I'm sure there's some really obvious challenges, but like, what are some of the challenges that you've seen and how have you overcome them? Well, I mean, the biggest challenge is just that we're all, there aren't like new marketing channels sprouting up every day, right? And so I think given a a different category, I'd be playing a little heavier in paid search because you get a little more of an instant boost of customers. And just frankly, that channel's closed because of um, sort of the investment that's coming from these big publicly traded companies. The other challenge is that, you know, we did a bunch of customer interviews and, you know, I think it's another it's another truism that we all know at this point is you have to be talking to your customer, talk to your customer, find out what they need. And when you're in, exist- in a big category that's been existing for a long time, like a customer support help desk, when you talk to customers, sometimes they say, well, I just want you to build Zendesk, right? And the features that they know about are the ones that exist in other tools. And you have to be willing to kind of say, no, I, I, we just can't do that right now. And an example of, is a chat widget. Um, a lot of my customers want a chat widget, something we may do, but I have to be conscious as a solo founder with a small team that this what the doors that opens up from a support standpoint. And so really the challenges come to just trying to be like trying to play a sort of feature to feature war with these big companies. You just can't do it. And so navigating, finding my little seam in this big space um, and understanding why people choose keeping over these other tools is just super important. Otherwise, I'm just building Zendesk and I'm going to lose, right? Right. Because your customers are going to just keep requesting I want that feature. I want that feature. They used to do that with Drip. Everybody wanted us to build Mailchimp, right? And it's like, no, that's that's not how we win. We need to either have a unique feature set, unique positioning, or own a traffic channel and just just get li- rank rank one higher than Zendesk and Google, and you'll do really well. Be willing to pay more than Zendesk for an ad. I know you can't, but then you'll you'll do really well. Like that's I don't know. I hear a lot of people wanting to just replicate an idea, and it's like, look, I don't I don't mind people building competitors. I think that's great, but it's how are you going to win at least in this small segment? And that's what you're talking about is, is understanding your differentiation, right? Yeah. And I think that we've, it's communicating that in a way when folks, you know, are sort of like looking at keeping like, well, what is, how is this different is, is the challenge, right? Is to sort of say immediately from right off the, right off the jump, here's how keeping is different. And I think what we find for most folks is that another tab, another tool, a lot of folks don't want that, right? And so we have to somehow zoom that into them and saying like, listen, you can do everything you need inside Gmail. Wouldn't that be nice? And that takes a little bit of communication. It takes a video. It can take more than you can get off of each one on a website. But that is that is the core challenge right now is just making sure that we have space from these giant competitors and there's a reason to choose us. I'm going to start a new segment on Startups for the Rest of Us starting today. And I'm going to ask every founder who comes on here, I hope you keep me accountable to this. <laughs> the segment is called, How Did You Know When You Hit Product Market Fit? And the reason I want to ask that is because you know when you see it. Like I remember pointing to two graphs when uh, Drip hit Product Market Fit, which is obviously it's a continuum and you can have it with a smaller group and then more. So it's not this binary thing. But I remember pointing and telling Derek and Anna, that's what Product Market Fit looks like. And the two graphs were churn plummeting, Trial to paid, accelerating, traffic was uh, flat. Right. But all the numbers are going the right. And I, was, and I knew it. And we launched you know, automation and blah, blah, blah. But that was my experience of it. And I, I know that a lot of people like 
are always asking, like, how do I know? How do I know? How did you know? Do you remember that moment? Well, I would love, I mean, do I, I, I still don't know, right? I'm waiting, <laughs> I'm waiting for the email from, yep. from you, Rob, to tell me that yeah. I've reached product market fit. <laughs> That's it. Um, no, I think that you're right. There's a sense, I think churn is a big indicator. I think that when you're talking to customers, you can kind of hear it in them about how, whether it's excited or happy that they found the thing that you've built. I don't think you always see it in an MRR graph. I think a lot of folks imagine product market fit being this big hockey stick in uh, ProfitWell or, or ChartMogul. And I don't think that's the case because you still have to expose your product to the world and you have to sign up folks. And so it's really as with these sort of smaller metrics. For us, um, we've seen generally really good sort of trial to paid conversion. We have some metrics internally that we use about when is somebody an engaged user and then when do they actually go to paid. And those numbers continue to get better. So that's how we say we've met we've met product market fit. But honestly, man, I, I, I think that it's a constant thing. I think that you're always polishing and iterating and maybe expanding your product enough so that you're fitting a few more customers at a time. That's perfect. That's exactly how I think about it too, right? Is not only is it a continuum, it's not a one or a zero, it's more like a zero to 100. But it's with a certain group of people. And then it gets you, that ring gets bigger and bigger and bigger, hopefully, if you're doing things right. And that's why it's, that's why it is so hard. So you have this successful business, it's growing well, you start ranking for these terms, and you applied to Tiny Seed here about seven months ago. Is that right? When you would apply? No, um, I'm in the November batch. So yeah, less. well, when did we run them in August? I think we ran in August. Yeah. So is that six months? Yeah, he applied about six, yeah, six, six months. months ago. So what went into that decision? And I always preface this question with, I don't bring Tiny Seed founders on here to make it an advertisement for Tiny Seed. I think that that the founders that I know who have really interesting stories, there's a lot of them that wind up in Tiny Seed, right? And in addition, it's not this is not for us to you know sit here and say, oh, Tiny Seed's amazing, this and that, even though I think it is. But I, I do want to know, like from the outside, when you're considering whether to take money, whether it's from Tiny Seed or someone else, it's a big decision. It's a little bit like buying an app. It's kind of an, you know, it's a hard decision to undo and it is a a risk. You are giving something up. In the case of buying the app, it's cash. And in the case of, of Tiny Seed, it's, you know, it's equity in your company. So what was that thought process for you? Well, it's funny you ask because my decision to apply to Tiny Seed, it was always in the back of my mind that someday, and I think this is probably true for a lot of bootstrap founders, like, oh, I think that I'm going to try that someday, right? And if you're paying attention to, to sort of the uh, microconf ecosystem, you hear the announcements, it's happening. And I think I was listening to startups for the rest of us, and you're, you announced it like, hey, Tiny Seed batches are opening up. And I literally, on an impulse, in my boxers, went over to my computer and said, oh, I think I'm going to apply, right? So it was a five-minute process, maybe 10 minutes of putting in some numbers into a form. And it really was, I wish it could say it was more considered. Like you just gave a great preamble about what a big decision it is. But for <laughs> me, it was like, well, I'm just going to do this first step and see if I get in. And then I'll make the next decision, right? And I think the honest answer on why, well, there's two, it's twofold, right? I think that if you're a solo founder who has two kids, I've got a five-year-old and an eight-year-old, there's the money, of course, that's an important reason. But um, the real honest answer is that you are desperate for validation as a founder. Be like, am I doing the right thing? Should I keep doing this, right? And it's not just to, to your buddies in the business community, but to your, to your wife, to your partner. And joining an accelerator, whether it's Tiny Seed or another one, is a really important validation of being like, hey, you're on the right path. 
keep doing this. And I think that it's easy to overlook that part of joining, taking an investment or um, joining an accelerator is that it's a, it's an external validation that I think we all need as founders. And then there's a community that comes with it, which has been frankly as worthwhile as the money. And I think that we're all in our basements right now with COVID doing our best, the best we can, but it's a grind. And if anyone tells you that it's not, they're not telling you the whole story. And so being able to do that in a cohort with, with other people to be able to do masterminds with folks that are in the same spot as you is, is great. The, the second reason is the more obvious one, which is I'm in a big expensive category with lots of competitors and I need money to market to them, right? And going to my savings to do that is a limited option, right? There's not, I can't do that forever and I can't pour all the profits into marketing forever. And so having an outside investment when you're in a big category, I think is really important. So it's allowed me to really invest in content marketing. I've hired two writers. I have a content strategist. There's a whole bunch of folks that came on board because of the investment that would just not be possible if it wasn't for that. So two separate reasons of why Tiny Seed, one financial and the other is sort of emotional. Right. And I, I think you touched on some good points. And it's one of the reasons that we, Anar and I talked at one point about why don't we just raise a fund before we launch the accelerator? Why don't we just raise a fund? It would be so much easier <laughs> to just write checks and not write because the accelerator, it's a lot of work. And, and it's what we signed up for, but we wanted to not just write checks. We wanted to be able to mentor, advise, and build that community. And that that piece is, if you go listen to all the startups, the rest of us, and the Tiny Seed Tales interviews I've done with Tiny Seed founders, they keep coming back to that. The community and the advice are actually as important, if not more important, than the money. Yep, and I and there's there's a playbook, right? I'm putting, you know, people can't see this, but I'm putting air quotes around it. And it's, you're not, I don't, I, you know, I, I think it's important that folks understand is that everyone's journey is their own journey. And there's no okay, you follow steps A, B, C, D, E, and you're going to be a unicorn. That's absolutely not the case. But I do think that there are things that, that you don't know that you don't know that are incredibly helpful and you can learn in a, again, I'm sort of using this more generally, in any sort of accelerator environment, doesn't have to be tiny seed, that gets you, I think, up, up a level. And that's, I think that's really important if you're going to be a founder and a CEO of a company. Well, Cody, thanks so much for joining me today. Great story and told very well. If folks want to keep up with you on Twitter. You are Cody. It's C-O-D-E-E, which I get the, right. the double meaning there. You're a coder. <laughs> you're a Cody. Yeah, that's if they want to see your uh, Wordle, yeah. your latest Wordle. And keeping.com, of course, again, your H1 is delightfully simple customer support in Gmail. So you never have to leave Gmail. And you know what? When I first saw this idea, I thought, I like this because Heaton Shaw with Crazy Egg and whatever else he had done, I don't think his metrics stayed in Gmail, but I know that like to this day, Crazy Egg, which is a very profitable business and quite a few employees, everything's done in Gmail and they have custom labels and all that. Have you heard, have you talked to him or have you, you've heard about that? I've not talked to him, but there's, you know, there's a whole ecosystem of businesses that are riding on top of Gmail. God bless us if Gmail decides to not allow us into their world, right? Platform risk is real, Yeah, but there's also 3 billion users there. So um, it's nice to have access to that. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. All right, man. Thanks again to Cody for taking the time to tell his story and for coming back on the show next week where we're going to dive into nine tactics for amazing customer support. If we're not connected on Twitter, look me up. I'm at Rob Walling. Thanks for listening today. And I'll be back again next Tuesday morning. Mm-hmm.